0: This is like the 103rd A, there's, an, there's a B at 11, 11 a.m. Uh, where Stephen Burke will lead us in a similar update uh, briefing. This one's rather stark, I would say. So, you know, <clears throat> buckle up. Uh, at 8.30, those who are allocators and have submitted their surveys, it's my one request, um, uh, you can join our asset uh, allocation session. So it's part two. We want to get some, uh, some Asian input there, and uh, you just go to. I'll put it in the chat. Actually, and as as usual, has beaten me to a punch. Uh, then at ten thirty, town hall eleven. Mark, quick question on that one: is that is that a anonymized uh, survey, or can it be done in an anonymized way, or or is you, that it's important it, that it's not? It is only, uh, it's anonymous to the extent that it's publicly shared. So yes, but I do, I need to know who, who's doing it in case I need to follow up to see who, who's the profile. We're sort of, cause if you're just a random investor. investor, then I, I discount the right. uh, the answers. And, so,
1: and the, this, the summary data that, that I'm going to present is, is all anonymous. Cause it's all, it's all averaged in.
0: Yep. The great thing is he did this last week and, and then he couldn't join us. <laughs> so, well, this is in a way is the, the real one from Bill. Uh, <laughs> he's the one who did the slides. Stephen and I tried our best. And then, uh, yeah, so at 11, we have a briefing at 1130, it's the up- Ukraine update number five. There'll be some interesting for speakers speaking on, on Russia, Ukraine, uh, and then we have, uh, in Europe, and then we have the, some 80 requests and, and we got some great wins, uh, and, and I thank many, many people, too many people to thank, but we've got ambulances being funded, medical kits being funded soon, some, uh, telecom, uh, soon, hopefully pharma, um, all because of this network. So with that,
1: um, over to you, Stephen Burke. Thanks, Mark. <laughs> so I wouldn't say it's as dark and a uh, view as Mark had, but Clearly the world is entering a period where we're going to have massive geopolitical, economic and societal shifts that are, that are already occurring. And the Russian attack on Ukraine is going to remake the world. Um, we just don't know how it's going to do that because, uh, how much things are going to change because we don't know how long, uh, the war is going to go on for and just how far, uh, President Putin's willing to go, uh, whether he, uh, goes nuclear or, or or chemical weapons and all that. We're just not clear on it. What is clear is that the global economy is facing another economic shock at a time that we were just starting to recover from the pandemic, but then that recovery was even starting to weaken. Supply chains were starting to improve, but now they're getting another layering of uh, supply chain shocks to the system so that that's going to weigh on it the russian and ukrainian economies will be devastated for some time russia from the sanctions as uh, as well as uh, the isolation that's going to come from from those sanctions the uh, the system is getting challenged in a way that we really haven't challenged we're going to see in europe higher much higher energy prices higher food prices immigration flows that are going to be disruptive too um, world food supply is being disrupted and international alliances are being reconfigured. So we got a lot of things going on all at once that you have to step back and say everything has to change with what's going on here. Um, the other challenge is the countries closest to the conflict, whether it's through trade or uh, financial or migration links, are all going to suffer the greatest harm as are the uh, countries and the segments of the population that are most uh, impacted where food and energy are the highest share of their uh, income, they're going to be greatly affected. So that's why we think everything's changed, Mark. This is a a very different period. So let's just go through, you know, the impact of the war. Obviously, we've had some of the highest volatility in the markets we've had in a condensed period in a long time. We've had more 1% and 2% moves this year, I suspect. I don't have the exact number than we had all of last year. Um, It's really difficult for business leaders and government leaders to uh, make choices about where they're putting money and where they're spending money because of uh, the shifting needs that are going on. But clearly, GDP is going to come down. It was already coming down. But the big issue is inflation looks like it's going to be higher for longer. And you add to that now we have a port problem where there may be a strike in, uh, this in June for the ports of LA and, and Long Beach and other ports in the U.S. That's, that's going to create even bigger issues there. I think ultimately this leads to central banks talking up their rate moves, but not being able to move them up as much as everyone would like them to. They're going to have to let inflation run longer to, uh, to buy time for the economy and avoid pushing the economy into recession that they won't have the firepower to get us out of. I think you're going to see big shifts in investments and trading. That's why we think everything's changed. Um, trade is, or was already being reoriented back closer to home. Supply chains were being made more resilient and safe. We were shifting that, that emphasis, and I think that's going to continue. I think the other big change for the near term is that energy security will trump the clean energy transition, and that's going to create some different flows and, and rethinking of how we're supplying ourselves with energy. The big question that people are asking is globalization over, is it going to be just different? We'll touch on that. Uh, but clearly, recession, recession risks are on the rise. We're not as concerned about it for the U.S. as we are for Europe, a lot of the emerging economies. Um, we're not as concerned about it for China either, because they didn't throw as much money at the problem last year. They've been very targeted about how they're dealing with it. But China has problems of their own. So this is definitely a slower growth environment with higher inflation that you really need to think how you're investing in that period. So let's just take a look quickly at some of the key elements. This is a report that was came out last week from the OECD on the war's impact on growth on uh, the world economy, the U.S., the OCD nations, and the euro area. And this was uh, based on the next 12 months' impact if everything stayed where it was a week ago in terms of the sanctions and the oil prices and, and food prices. So we're not in a static state, but just to give you a sense, they're looking at world GDP down a little over 1%, the U.S. down about 0.8%, uh, and euro closing in on one5 I think these are way short of what it would really be because things look like they're getting worse and could continue. Without a resolution quickly in Ukraine, I think we're going to see these numbers slide even more. But we're definitely in for a lower growth period, which actually in and of itself will reduce some of the inflationary pressures because consumers will be redirecting their spending and pulling in their spending and confidence will be impacted. But we are going to see higher inflation. We're already seeing it. And this comes on top of the higher inflation we had last year. Our view of inflation, for those who have been listening for the last hundred and some odd weeks, was that we thought we were going to be returning to deflationary tendencies. But the big change for us isn't that globalization is over, but it's going to change. And that change of supply chains and the change in how we view the energy transition is going to foster a higher inflationary period for some time. And that is going to be a big change. And you can see it here. Um, this is just for the impact as of two weeks ago over the next year. I think one of the big issues, and it it isn't at the start of a crisis like this, but it is later on, is the fl- uh, growing refugee crisis and the flow of refugees from the Ukraine. And this is a tragedy of massive proportions. But you have about over a 10th of the country's population being displaced and moving. And I think it's probably even higher than that now because of the surge of uh, the Russian attack. But as this moves up, that's going to create greater strains on other European countries. And as we saw from the Arab Spring and and that period with Syria migration, it fell on a few countries and that disproportionate impact creates bigger strains inside the, the European system. You can see here the crisis and who's taken the most refugees so far. And it's really fallen on a, on a handful of countries. How does the EU step up and support this? And not only the EU, but how does the rest of the world? What is the US, Canada and other countries going to do to help with this, with this problem? Because initially, and I asked this question on a call a couple of weeks ago. Why is this going to be different than the last crisis on refugees? And it was the, the answer was because the Europeans. And I think that's right initially. But I think as time goes on, it gets more difficult to deal with the population who is uh, struggling to find work and pay their bills with the higher energy costs. And the country is dealing with uh, inflows of refugees. It creates big internal social strains and budgetary strains for governments. I think that's going to be one of the big implications of this. I don't want to minimize the human tragedy that's going on and the, all those people that are impacted, but to put it in economic terms this, and political terms, this is going to be a big problem going forward. We all know the, the, the price is changing on everything, and you can see that here and just run through key elements. But what is is a big surprise for the global system is the outsized impact of Russia and Ukraine and this conflict on uh, the global production and global distribution of all these things. And that's going to push governments to really focus on security in a different way than they have in the past will be leading to stockpiling and securing, uh, trade relationships that are going to give you dependable sources. And to do that, you're going to. To provide those sources if it's outside your own country. And this is going to create in our view blocks that are going to be economic and security and trading blocks that will take this. And I think, um, I, I forget who made the comment, Mark, earlier about how does the U.S. and China pair off, or is it going to be only adversarial, or it could be a partnership. And I think the right answer for the global economy is we're going to have to partner in some areas and compete in others. And uh, economically, we're going to have to partner better to deal with uh, our mutual needs. But also, to be world leaders, you're going to have to drive the world economy and the geopolitics in a way that works for not only the democratic nations, but also for uh, some of the autocratic nations and others following different uh, government structures. Gas prices are a big issue, and this is going to be continue to be crippling, but this is going to change trade relationships in a major way. You're already starting to see the U.S. and Europe looking at how they're uh, creating natural gas uh, trade relationships. But then you have the countries like uh, the Saudis and the UAE who wouldn't take President Biden's call. Um, uh, That shows you some of the strains and some of the shifts that are going on here, as people need to be clear on uh, who they're going to have economic and political relationships with going forward. We've talked about defense spending. This is not just about uh, ground war, but this is about cybersecurity. It's about space and Security is going to be such a big issue that it's going to drive budgets and uh, really change the agendas for a lot of countries. And in the U.S., one of the big changes is what does it do for the Build Back Better program when we're really looking at other crises all at once? And things that are uh, more ideologic and further out are going to be pushed further out, and we're going to focus more on practical, immediate needs because we're in a crisis right now uh, from what's going on around the world. Fortunately for the U.S., we're in a good economic spot coming into this. We were uh, overstimulated the economy, which was pushing the inflation up. But that's part of the reason companies and the economy is powering through right now and the U.S. is holding up better. But the duration of the war and how this how this plays out could alter that pretty quickly. So you can't get complacent. So what does this mean for investors? Well, the central banks are going to be forced to live in the developed economies with higher inflation because they have so many other problems they have to deal with. And they don't have the financial wherewithal to stave off a recession if they're too aggressive and pushing us there too soon. It does mean you want to favor equities over bonds, certainly in the intermediate term. Although, interestingly, I saw a report today that said that uh between the uh, first stages of an inversion and before the uh, recession hits, both equities and bonds in the U.S. actually perform positively, which is not what people would normally think. But interesting side, side note there. It's when the recession hits that things really turn over. Uh, we, we favor the U.S. over, over the rest of the world. We have for some time, but we, we thought Europe was going to be a brighter spot coming in, but we now think that the chances of recession are, are significantly higher there. Um, but we also favor strong balance sheets over weak. This is a quality environment you want to be investing in. The rising rates going to lead to multiple contraction, and that's going to uh, really put a focus on the quality that I was just talking about. And for some time, we've avoided the extremes in valuations, both the high multiples and the really low ones. We thought the high multiples were going to get sliced, and they and they have pretty aggressively. But we thought the low multiple ones that earn their their multiples. Uh, by the lack of investment and the mismanagement. And we think that's, uh, an area you still want to stay away from. China is the big wild card and how they play this and how their economy is working and how comfortable they are, um, walking the tightrope between being aligned with, uh, Russia because they want to minimize the US's, uh, uh, standing in the global economy on one hand, but also their trade relationships are really with the West. So they have a political alignment against their best customers. That's an awkward way to play. So how do they finesse that? I think that's a key issue and and one of the great uncertainties. We're continuing to invest in the big trends. We think the U.S. is going to have and the rest of the world is going to have massive spending needs coming out of this. It will change the agendas and particularly in the energy transition area. I think this is going to have people realize that the Transition requires a management of fossil and uh, renewables, and we have to balance how we get there. And it'll also probably put uh, nuclear back in a bigger, in a bigger way. Um, This earnings and capex is going to drive performance. The one thing I'll leave you with is um, we think this is a time you can still make money. You just have to be focused on the right areas and narrow your scope down to where you want to invest. But there are certain areas that are going to be required spend that are that have good valuations in this environment um, that you can take advantage of. A company like Micron is selling for less than 10 times uh, uh, next year's earnings and is absolutely essential to the system. So we look at those opportunities, and that's where we're focused. So Mark, I'll stop there and open up for questions. Thank you, Stephen. Any
0: th- thoughts, responses, questions?
2: Yeah, I have a question. Yes. Hi, my name is Paula Schwartz and I work, um, in the refugee, um, crisis, um, in, in Europe and beyond. So my one question to you would be about the metaverse, um, because a lot of people are also looking to flee the current uh, realities that we're seeing and, um, Facebook, uh, famously dropped, um, by a, a massive amount, right? Um, when they changed their name to Meta. So what do you see for, um, the metaverse and how is that gonna play out? And, um, to extend the question a little bit further, um, do you think the tech sector will, um, recover anytime soon? I'm sorry if I missed that part as well. No, that's
1: oh. fine. I'll, I'll answer the second part first, uh, because I understand it better, I think then the metaverse, um, I think the tech sector is a lot of different companies inside there. I think there are. Um, I think you have to separate out uh, the companies that are really uh, growing earnings in a in a meaningful way versus the ones that, uh, in the pandemic, were uh, full of hope on on the future but weren't really backing it with earnings. Um, I think that's going to be the big issue. You really need to focus on the Uh, more appropriate multiple stocks and, uh, and avoid the really high multiple tech stocks that were not, um, that didn't really have this sustainable, uh, characteristics for growth going forward. I do think that the semi area is an area that you want to be very cognizant of, um, and continue to play that both the chips and the equipment makers because the needs are going to continue to grow. We think that the technology sector is going to be the underpinning of all the change that's coming. Um, but at the same time, the supply chain issues are real and they're, and they're impacting the tech area, including the chip area right now is the neon gas out of Ukraine is a big issue in terms of uh, the production and etching for uh, lithography and other areas. So um, we do like the the tech sector quite a bit. I think there are some big changes going on as it relates to um, how countries are using uh, this crisis to uh, uh, strengthen their own national champions. And you're seeing that with Europe as they're approaching uh, the U.S. big tech companies and how they're kind of uh, neutering them in a way to to level the playing field. I, I think there's going to be a lot of movements there that you have to think through. What does the uh, policy changes by Apple mean for advertisers, and <clears throat> what does Google letting Spotify uh, build directly mean? So I think there's significant shifts going on. You just think if the services businesses get cut, their revenues cut in half because of what Google's doing with Spotify. Um, what does that mean for these businesses long term? So when we say everything's changed, I think you really need to look at everything you own. And think about it from if you were just buying it today, would you still buy it? And is the risk-reward the same way it is when you went into it? Um, I think that's the way we have to approach our whole portfolio. I know at ARS, we did that exercise over the last month where we've been going through every name in the portfolios and making sure our risk-reward targets are appropriate for that uh, because of how much things are changing for how the businesses outlooks are going to be. As it comes to the metaverse, I think the – think the issue you raised about the pandemic and now the war, um, have people wanting to be in an alternative, uh universe so they can, a different reality, so they can escape the problems because we can't believe what's going on. Um, I'm just not sure, and others on the call are much better at this, uh, how it gets all monetized over the long term. But clearly, uh, the interest is really starting to grow here. It's just not an area that I'm as uh, uh, strong at describing as others on the call would be. And Paula, thank you for what you're doing. It's uh, inspiring to, to all here.
2: Thanks. I'm trying, and I could never do it without the community. We just got 10 ambulances funded, uh, it seems, like we're closing that. And um, 361 was essential to actually make this deal happen. So well, a lot of uh,
1: people try. You're getting it done, though. So thank you.
2: Well, but, yeah, let's hope it, uh, it ends soon with the crisis. But... Yeah.
1: Mark other questions comments
0: yes let and if anybody wants to hit the metaverse point, uh, feel free
1: hey um, stephen i'll i' I'll, I'll throw one in um you know as as you were talking about kind of some of the realignments it it struck me as a, this is this is almost like going back to the eighteen hundreds. And, and a much more mercantilistic type of view that, that countries may have to have in terms of securing supplies and security, you know, across a a variety of different sectors. Does, does that seem to resonate? Yeah, I think the, um, I think we're going to end up with real trade blocks and security blocks that, uh, if it goes that way, it's, it's really kind of frightening what you think a bifurcated world would be or trifurcated world would be. Um, you have these political alignments that are scaring people, whether it's NATO or whether it's the you know alliance with the U.S. and uh, South Korea and Japan and Australia, and, and how we're creating these defense alignments and we're creating these you know, uh, trading alignments that are going to go. But when it comes to securing natural resources that are going to be essential for everything, whether it's the rare earths or uh, food and energy, right? How does all that play out? And how do you get national security in a way that uh, is going to be comfortable? I think this is going to really disrupt the global order. And I think they, uh, uh, unfortunately, I think this is going to be a um, potentially a longer problem to resolve with uh with the situation in europe so the i think the longer it goes on the more it pushes countries to create alignments that are going to be very different than what we've seen before hard to say how it all plays out though because as i said at the start if you don't know how long and how severe this is going to be and how far president putin can take it then uh In terms of chemical weapons and others, you just don't know how far it's going to push the rest of the world's response. So I do think this is a really – I think you have to look at your investment portfolios and uh, look at how you're thinking about doing business very differently than you did just before February 24th. So so to that point,
0: Bill, you know, uh, we did this 8 a.m. for a reason because, you know,
1: 2021,
0: China was the darling, Asia broadly. But China, particular now, it's I haven't followed it where how far it's where it stands. But uh, I'd be curious for those that are in, in Asia how how Asia views things that are evolving.
3: I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> That's all. All right. Um, um, I worked as uh, you know customs clearance agent here in Bangladesh, and also of course I'm I'm consulting with a lot of companies abroad, and. It's like everything was moving in a certain direction the last just one month ago, and now everything is up in the airs. Okay, we have no idea what's going to happen. I've got, uh, yeah, it's a scary situation right now, at least from the Bangladesh point of view, at my point of view, at least maybe others
0: don't feel that way over here. Um, but yeah, it's weird. Yeah, others? Uh, is it Rob Drop?
4: Yeah, I mean, from my side, probably having sat for two years stuck on this tiny little red dot of an island in Singapore and being quite resentful of it since February the 24th, I've probably never felt like it's been a better place to be sat Uh for its neutrality. And it's, uh you know, it's not Hong Kong. It's not China. It's not it's not the West. Um Yeah, I mean, super interesting, Stephen, the analysis. Um, Everything has changed. I I totally agree with you. I think the one thing that's coming into stark um, focus is that aside Zelensky, there is a a vacuum of leadership um, in the political halls of power (laughs) everywhere, right? And it's quite scary watching... Uh, I was chatting to someone um, about, you know, the implosion in the Chinese stock market in the last four weeks and the impact that that's had on private markets, fundamentals, and, you know, then the unguarded comments of President Biden and commentators being like, get this guy away from the microphone because he's more dangerous uh, than he is adding good. Um, You know, the net beneficiary of being a Brit, by, um, birth at least, uh, is probably Boris Johnson who's made a, a few of his short-term problems go away, um, through this. But yeah, I mean, it's, um, super interesting times. I guess the, the interesting opportunities that emerge from this are where do the outliers, you know, where do the outliers come into the frame, right? So, um i read i was just reading an article about you know Indonesia's uh nickel mining and the opportunity for Indonesia to rise Australia obviously being hugely resource rich in a number of the commodities that um the commodity cycle we're in super cycle we're in it's going to be interesting and i think the other interesting one is is where will japan uh End up out of this because they, you know, they've sat with sort of nuclear neutrality and the only country in the world to ever be attacked with a nuclear weapon. Um, and it'll be super interesting to sit, see where they end up out of all this. But, um, yeah, super, super analysis, Stephen, super interesting food for
1: thought. Hey, Rob, I have a question for you. How, How do you see China playing this out? Do they, do they try and be a peacemaker? to favorable terms for them or do they try and just let Russia go the way they're going and, and uh, choose wh- where they want to play militarily and economically? So like, I think the one thing that stands in the favor of the world at
4: the moment, because president, Xi does, does quite scare me uh because I think like Putin, he's a, he's a bit of a maniac with the lack of, global viewpoint and too much power and too much consolidation of power the one thing that does actually reassure me is the the covid uh scenario in in china at the moment it's still prevalent so you yeah, know whilst the rest of the world's moved on and you know uh the travesty happening in ukraine means that People in Ukraine, you know, and all of its neighbors who are taking the flood of refugees really can't focus on COVID. They've had to move on. Uh, and the US and the UK and Western Europe have sort of moved their agenda on. China is dealing with a domestic crisis that, uh, probably, probably provides a bit of a make weight for the world. So I just do I think that, uh, you know, President Xi's not going to weigh in with anything until he can sort out his own, you know, if he can't get his own house in order in, in China and stop the lockdowns in its major cities, he's not going to wade into a big diplomatic scenario Um, because he's probably probably going to watch with interest and see, you know, like I'm no Russia expert. There's way more Russia experts involved in 361 than me, but, you know, I've got a few friends in Russia and... Those expats who still base themselves in Russia they're you know they're they're obviously cautious about it but I think everyone kind of hopes that someone is going to step up either from the military or the oligarchy and remove Putin from power and I guess she probably wants to sort of take a watching brief because he's you know he's he's staved off enough challenges to his power over the last decade or more but um or you know all it takes is for the combination of all these factors that, you know, Stephen highlighted many of the acute ones. I, I, and I think the, the one that I put on, uh, Mark's form, you know, I think that the one that I think you've had Simon Littlewood come to your events in the past, right? Yep. Um, yep. I had a fascinating with, dinner with him about three years ago and he said the next major war is going to be about food. Um, and you know, this war wasn't about food. It was about, well, a maniac and maybe. A few factors energy other factors uh, and look, it scares me from the perspective that I spend most of my waking hours wondering around uh climate impact and how to invest in the climate transition you know it scared me that bullet point you put, stephen that climate transition the energy transition will be sidelined by energy security for the for the foreseeable um but uh yeah i mean that's that's the big factor right is um, in China, people have 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 learned to get, you know, easily get food and consumables slightly different to India, where there's still widespread poverty in many, many domains. But that's probably the, the big
0: challenge, food supply. Let, let's we're 833. We need to transition. I'm going to give it a few more minutes um, before we move into and some of the same, same things will be discussed again at my we're asking everyone to have done the, the survey. This is our one condition of participating. But, uh, but Francis, you you came on camera, and I did ask for Asian perspective. So, did you want to chime in?
3: Yeah, I actually did. Thanks, Mark. Uh, Stephen, I, I've been hearing a lot about the supply chain reshoring, and it's particularly been a, a big theme within the investor community. Um, each time I look at this supply chain issue uh, on behalf of our clients, I keep kind of running into this. Block in that we, if we move away from Asia or Southeast Asia and come back to the United States, Mexico, um, or places closer to home, let's say, even if it's, if it's Europe, then you're going to be looking at Eastern Europe maybe as a, as a, as a better option than, than Asia. Um, but each time I look at it, there's, there's a significant economic cost. And at the end of the analysis, Uh, the clients continue to choose sourcing from China, uh, Southeast Asia. And so I, I, I'm curious as to why there continues to be this, you know, Larry Fink letters that continue to come out. But it says a disconnect from what I see on a day and day basis of people not actually reshoring because the regulatory environment's not changing in, in the United States. There's not more labor available in Mexico. It's still expensive. It's still time consuming. So these are, it's its theoretically, it makes sense, but I just don't see it. And, I, and I'm curious if I'm missing something, you know, outside of tech. Yeah, it's, it's blocked off. But, you know, consumer hard goods, soft goods, which is a big part of what, you know, supply chain is all about, is, is, is not moving as fast as Larry Fink is, is telling me it
1: should. Well, I think it's a great it's a great question um I do believe that the, the the transitions all these transitions take time so you actually have to from the time you wish to do it to the time you can effectively make a, tr- a supply chain transition is it's not short time period so you, you have to it takes time what's happened now is uh companies and countries have now given been given the motivation to do it um, they didn't really, really have the motivation before the trade wars and the, uh, the sanctions really kicked in the way they have. And I think what's different right now is the degree of the sanctions that were put on Russia, um, particularly as it impacts the SWIFT system, are having implications for companies right now thinking it's one thing to lose Russia, um, which is going to hurt companies, you know, 3% or so of their revenues go out of Russia. But suppose we had to put those sanctions on China, then all of a sudden and you can't trade with China then you're in a completely different boat and I think what's happened in the last month is people have woken up to that that is not beyond the realm of possibility and therefore you really have to start moving supply chains around the the other thing that's that's happened and it's because of robotics and uh, you know the advancements in manufacturing we are able to bring stuff back and do it in a in a competitive manner. Um, so one of the elements is you can't bring it back to just get lower costs. But I think this is a big mindset shift between security and uh, supply chain security and resiliency uh, versus costs. And I think that change is going to be one of the big shifts that, that occurs. And that's what's going to push reshoring back. It's just it's in this early stages of moving. Um, but you're you're going to see it, and the Midwest is going to be a big winner in this because we're going to bring back manufacturing to updated plants, but we're not going to be doing it with the same level of uh, manual labor we're going to be doing it in the more automated way that's going to allow us to be more competitive if we do that. But I think one of the key elements is, and one of our inflation shifts in in our view is that uh when you do that, make that change, you're going to embed a slightly higher level of inflation into the system. Um, So I think this is one of the really tricky uh transitions that we're going to see and who can do that and who has the political willpower to do it because you need government support to make it happen. And the government support has to come not just from, you know, allowing or, or giving favorable tax stuff, but it's also going to get into environmental issues. You know, a lot of the stuff we sent away, we sent away because it's not good for the environment. Bringing that back, we're going to have to deal with. Finding ways to do it better environmentally too. So it, this is why it gets complicated. But um, you're not seeing the the uh, growth in labor in in some of those other places either. That we're being the like China has a wage issue that they've been raising wages so much that they're not competitive with other Asian nations now. So we're not going to be chasing lowest cost production. We're going to be chasing more secure production. I think that's going to be the shift and that leads to slightly higher costs
2: and lower ROEs
1: yes yeah
3: i think that's at the that's at the center of of the discussion right if you if you look at at previous attempts of of restocking in, you know much much lower degrees of what's happening now uh with sars right i mean people had started to accumulate ppe and then it rotted and expired on shelves and that was a cost that had to be sunk and 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 less returns that were made so that's that you know, it, it's a clashing force that you have to compete with in terms of being able to get to the solutions that that, that yeah, Stephen you're you're proposing, which I think make complete sense.
1: It's also what pushes the shift to use technology in a bigger spend, and that and you're seeing capex towards technology growing at at the fastest rate of almost any spend around, other than maybe cyber.